Hey, and welcome to episode 56 of the Thodcast, Conversations About Animation. I'm your host, Philip Elke, coming to you from northern Minnesota. And today I'm joined by Jody Plasky once again, coming to us from Georgia. Hey, Jody. And then also Hannah Lee Smart coming to us also here in Minnesota as well. Uh, you guys feel free to just jump in ad hoc style. Uh, how, how are you guys doing? I am loving this spooky, spooky blue season, and I'm super excited to talk about uh, Secret of Nim because I forgot how very creepy this movie was, and it really got me in that holiday Halloween spirit. Yeah, Hannah, uh, how's your Halloween season, October month of COVID going? <laughs> I love me a spooky season. Actually, fun fact to all of our listeners, Halloween is my favorite holiday. Um, I do believe this year will be a bit of a different Halloween, but I'm all the more optimistic. I'm not very into the like horror part of Halloween. I'm more into like the fun pumpkin Halloween, mm. but I'm still very excited. I think this was the perfect movie to do in spooky season because it's a bit creepy, but, um, and quite horrifying in a way. Um, but I'm super ready to talk about it. I'm excited. Yeah, uh, it's a magical season of the year. A lot of just fun, like, scents and sights. And, you know, you still get a little bit of warm weather with uh, October. So I understand people really gravitate towards this time of year, especially when it comes to the festivities. And it's generally less stressful, too, than holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas, more family-oriented and having to be in confined quarters with sometimes people you prefer not being around uh, at times. But uh, I don't know. It's, it's always good to be back with fam family, too, during those times of the year. And uh, I'm, I guess uh, once we get around to the inevitable holiday season of 2020, we'll be indulging in the spirit of those times as well. Um, but in the spirit of the spooky season with Halloween approaching, we are covering, yes, 1982's The Secret of Nim from director Don Bluth. This is actually our third Don Bluth film in a row on the podcast. Uh, so Hannah and Jody, um, you, you both, uh, um, let's see, it was just Jody and I on Bartok the Magnificent. Did, did you see Bartok, Hannah? I think I said this during Anastasia. I vaguely remember Bartok, but I did not re-watch. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting film. I mean, there's a lot going on seemingly subtextually and metaphorically, uh, but it's a short little romp, 66 minutes, very abstract compared to Anastasia, but technically a prequel. Um, <laughs> Which I love. What's that? I love a prequel more than a sequel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I guess Secret of Nim uh, did get a sequel, but I don't know if we'll be talking much about that. Um, I did just watch the trailer for it, and there's also like a musical number that's on YouTube that I watched, and and that film is a, a proper musical, even if it's not necessarily a proper theatrical film in itself. But um, yeah, Secret of Nim. Uh, the original from 1982. It's not a musical. It does have music. Uh, it's animated, of course, uh, featuring anthropomorphic characters. 
uh, rodents that talk, as well as human characters. Um, it's, it's a bit of a hodgepodge in how it approaches animals in an animated form. Um, and very, I would say, innovative in its technical, um, just the, the acumen in, at play with this film was, is very exceptional um, and, and very comparable to, you know, what Disney was putting out at the time. Uh, we'll get a little bit more into that. Um, I was also going to ask you, Hannah, what do you... <laughs> <laughs> this this might der derail us a little tiny bit, but I've been meaning to get around to hearing what you thought of Mulan. Um, Hannah, do you have any quick what? takes? Yeah. Um, here's, what one. <laughs> I, here's what I think about the new Mulan. I think that I am definitely attached to the animated movies, so that I think often skews my live action. I think the Lion King I liked better than Mulan for sure. Mm. Um, even though that also like took some of like the musical elements away that I really liked of the original Lion King, obviously not all of them, but um, I think more so than the movie itself, which was kind of hard to solidify in its own category, the political surroundings of the release of the movie made me almost like not respect the film at all because I just thought it was kind of like trash. Yeah, we did kind of go into that a little bit, the, you like, know, whether I, or not they knew it when they filmed it and that's kind the of that. Thing. But if you're going to spend that much on a movie, don't you mm -hmm. think? Yeah, the movie could have been a little more inspired and yeah, it's, it's kind of like they were just trying to really toe the line keeping China happy and, and it just kind of lacked too much real um, enthusiasm, innovation. And, and yeah, if you're filming in areas where there's active oppression going on, it's, yeah. it probably casts a pallor over the entire project. Yeah, it almost makes your project, um, no matter how, you know, it could be the greatest movie of all time, but now there's this stigma surrounding it and you truly did a disservice to everyone that wasted their time working on this movie because now whenever I think about that movie I don't think of like oh wow like this like piece of cinema I think like this piece of trash <laughs> all right well moving on to the topic at hand uh Secret of Nim based on a novel, I believe from 1971 by Robert C. O'Brien called Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. Uh, first off, in this adaptation of that novel, they had to change the name of the lead character, Mrs. Frisbee, uh, to Brisbee because of potential legal ramifications with the trademark of Frisbee which is owned by Mattel or one of their subsidiaries called Whammo. Uh, <laughs> and it's just one of those things where this company is very protective of their brand. So Frisbee, uh, unfortunately, um, it is one of those closely held uh, trademarks that, you know, if you try to infringe on that, you, you might suffer consequences. And it's kind of silly because it's become such a generic term nowadays. Um, 
but what do we know about trademarks, Philip? Really? I well, <laughs> Hannah and I. <laughs> I, I, they, they've come close to having that trademark like revoked from them because it's, it's migrated so much into the common parlance. Uh, but I think they still do technically hold the the term frisbee as a as a proprietary term. Um, but you know, if you're not going to get into too much trouble unless you try to actually manufacture your own frisbee. Um, or if you're like a major organization um, trying to use the 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 name, um, it's. But what they did, they actually recorded all the dialogue using the name frisbee. Uh, wow. How do you know <laughs> they that? did. Uh, I just read this online, um, and the uh, sound engineers had to go in and insert a B sound. The, they, oh my gosh. <laughs> they, uh, yeah, post-production inserted the B syllable um, at, at every occurrence of the word Frisbee. Uh, so yeah, it's very clever editing using magnetic tape. <laughs> it must have taken hours. It's not too distracting because, I mean, it's just one letter, but... Um, the uh, the story is very similar to the original book. It's about uh, anthropomorphic rodents. Mrs. Frisbee is a mouse, and um, she goes on an adventure to try to uh, seek the help of a bunch of intelligent rats. Um, these rats have human intelligence, uh, even though in a lot of these animated films you have rodents or animals with seemingly no like scientific enhancements capable of interacting with each other like humans you know, capable of speaking and things like that so it's interesting how this film does sort of justify the ability for animals to use uh language things like that yeah what, what do you guys think of the whole um premise of this film well, for me, just because I had last week talked about Bar Talk with you, this one I loved. I thought that the plot, I was sucked into it. I was really, I don't know, compelled by her little story of wanting to save her son and save her home. And I mean, she's a widower. So I thought the plot was amazing. And I thought that the animation, all the watercolor and kind of the darker, grainier look was really, really cool. So I felt like I was captivated with it. I watched this with my boyfriend and he really liked it a lot too. So I think this one in comparison to Bartok and maybe some of the other Bluth films, it kind of rises above the rest as long as you don't mind a darker, like we said, creepier storyline. I'd give it like a nine out of 10. Mm. Um, I think, well, I was also really interested in her as a character, and I think for me that was probably the biggest pull of it, if that makes sense. Um, I think of the movies that were kind of around this time. I know, Philip, in the thing that you sent us, it said like Fox and the Hound and like that stuff. Um, with They had a little bit bigger budget than this, but I was almost comparing it to that in a way. I think it just, it seemed like it cost less money, which it did. But I love, um, I love the, her sense of self in her character. She's just, just so, like, gentle. 
I do, however, think um, just to myself, as mm-hmm. we all know, I'm like a bit wild sometimes. Um, <laughs> but there's actually, um, when I was just looking up like my little facts to share about the movie, there's a whole PETA article on this um, about the way that they treated the rats, like um, how they like cut into their skulls and injected them and stuff. And like, it's honestly like that part made me irate mm-hmm. I, I knew you would say something about this believe <laughs> that it was in a kids movie it's good and it exposes them to it it made me so mad and there's like the the rats in the field that are like and all the animals really that are like living their dreams and like mm-hmm. so happy and then these farmers like rip up the land and like cut their skulls and it's like oh my god and I just hate it, and I hate experimenting on animals, and honestly, if you need to test something, like, put it on yourself, honey, because it's really, really, really not okay to do that to the animals, and it's, it's like, yeah. insane to me, so you've got, like, Fox and the Hound, where they're, like, running around making friends with a dog and a, and a fox, mm-hmm. and then you literally have this, where they're, like, chopping up the skulls, and, like, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> it's macabre yeah nim is an acronym for national institute of mental health you find that early on in the film when the um owner of the farm receives a call from nim um and regarding at uh a rats that they plan on you know coming in exterminating i guess the um, people at NIM sort of trace these rats to this farm. Um, I guess their labs were located somewhat close by. Uh, the, the Fitzgibbonses are the farmers uh, who live in this house. And uh, yeah, the, you know, this movie's based, or it's um, primarily focused on the character of Mrs. Frisbee, who is the wife of uh jonathan well okay i said frisbee there but yeah in the <laughs> film it's it brisbee yeah, yeah. <laughs> jonathan brisbee uh a character who we only see in flashbacks and he doesn't have any speaking lines um but he uh, helped assist the rats of nim uh in their escape um and yeah they uh he, he was an experimental mouse um, who probably was able to transmit some of his intelligence, like his enhancements, to Mrs. Uh, Brisby, presumably, uh, which is why she's able to express intelligence herself. I don't know. I mean, this film is interesting because it, it blurs genres. It, you know, it's not just like a pastoral film like um, Fox and the Hound, for example, just kind of animals doing their own thing and becoming friends, forming bonds with their their owners, their masters, and, and with uh, each other. Mm-hmm. This is a film where you have like actual uh, intelligent a- animals intermingling with uh, other animals that don't have the scientific experiments done on them. Um, but you have this crow character voiced by Dom DeLuise, Jeremy introduced in the very beginning. Uh, and crows are known to be intelligent you know, animals. Um, Unless you have something shiny around them, then <laughs> they're supposed to be very distracted. 
That's a real life phenomenon, huh? I, I've heard that that is true. I heard that they will actually like pick up like shiny little things off the road mm. and bring them up to their nests. And that like people have found things like rings, necklaces, like discarded jewelry that they find. I mean, I don't know how the jewelry is getting on the roads to begin with, but I've heard that crows are actually like that. That wouldn't surprise me and that it actually adds a layer of authenticity to this film where you, Jeremy is shown to be attracted to a shiny object later on in the film. I actually think this film is pretty um, realistic. Like it's based on lots of like real events and um, the real like National Institute of Mental Health is also trash to animals. So mm. it's like crazy to me how they actually took so many real life elements, which is a total Disney move, by the way. I think Disney, like their researchers and stuff like that, like are always taking elements of like the culture that they're portraying. Um, but this is a pretty interesting like realistic representation especially in like the era that it was made how it was so kind of like on point okay the national institute of mental health is headquartered in bethesda maryland it's founded in april 1949 uh and it is a real thing <laughs> um I, I guess i think it's a branch of the nih the national institutes of health um, so, yeah, it's, I guess it is still sometimes referred to as NIM, though. Uh, that is interesting. I, I didn't bother to really research. Oh, I'll send you this whole you know. key article. It really <laughs> sent me into a spiral. Yeah, it's, I, I don't like the idea of experimenting on animal subjects, but, I mean, it's, um, you know, if you absolutely have to in the case of, like, a med mental emergency, you know, like what yeah, we're doing with I COVID... Yeah. yeah, I think Hannah's main thing is like, there's a lot of stuff like lipstick colors. Like, do you really need to like cut a rabbit in half to be sure that the lipstick color isn't going to have a bad reaction on a human? Honestly, people like that make me want to chop their whole lips off. <laughs> but there was some uh, other stuff too in this movie that was like, realistic that they talk about, like, for example, the owl acknowledging that it eats mice. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's not often that you hear these animal friends, especially if they're, you know, talking animals, talking about kind of the facts of life that, oh, mm -hmm. if you go talk to this owl, he might eat you. Um, and kind of that, yeah. that food chain element of it all, which again, um, it, yeah. oh, it's, well, it's a mind bending concept when you have to sort of create these worlds based around animals. Zootopia deals with it in an interesting way. Oh, yeah. uh, like they don't even, um, you know, carnivores don't even eat animals anymore in the civilized society, at least not legally. Uh, and it's canon where in Zootopia, uh, the, the protein that is consumed by carnivorous animals and otherwise is mainly from like bugs and stuff. That's how they've dealt with that problem <laughs> well this owl clearly does eat animals yeah. because i mean not only do they reference it but when mrs brisby you know starts her quest and she goes to visit the great owl when she's looking around she's seeing other like mice bones and skeletons and she's like walking through these cobwebs seeing all these mm -hmm. i mean dead bodies of her peers mm -hmm. and i thought that was a pretty creepy thing to show in a kid's movie mm-hmm Oh yeah, the, yeah. The even just the visual design of the owl 
himself is pretty freaky <laughs> for young kids. My question uh, was, why do some of the animated animals have these eyes without a pupil that are like glow in the dark, really intense? <laughs> and then other animals have the cute pupiled eyes that are really like approachable, good animals. I don't know. Um, like the wise mouse doesn't have pupils. The great owl doesn't have pupils. I, you know, these yeah. big bright eyes. Was there an explanation for that that anyone found why they decided to animate them like that? I guess certain powers, like psychic powers that some of the characters are shown to possess, particularly uh, Nicodemus, and perhaps the owl with whom Nicodemus is psychically linked, um, which I read is somewhat corroborated by the fact that they were considering casting the same actor to portray both Nicodemus and the owl. Huh. Um, but the reason they didn't was because they wanted more uh, celebrity talent involved in the project uh, to help raise its, uh, you know, kind of I could see that bringing yeah, kind of more profile. attention to it. Yeah, throwing those big names on the, the poster for the movie. Because this one yeah, did the go credits. to theaters, right? This wasn't a straight two. Yeah, it wasn't theaters. Um, it cost around $7 million to make, which is insanely low for uh, a film like this. But it was a fairly um, strewn together studio uh, of artists who had departed from Disney and and you know, fairly low paid workers on this film. Uh, and then, yeah, they, you know, it was kind of like a first time team working together and they didn't have the same kind of like big studio overhead that a company like Disney would have at the time. Um, and then some of their artists just put in crazy hours uh, to make it happen. But yeah, it cost around $7 million and they ultimately grossed around 14 million at the box office. Do you want to know where I first saw the budget cuts happen? Where? Uh, so when they decide that it's time to start plowing the field where all of the cute little animals live, uh, mm. there's a scene where they're trying to start up the tractor. And throughout the movie, the tractor's animated pretty well. But there's this scene where they're starting the tractor and it, it makes this sputtering sound. And instead of like moving the tractor, like the whole frame is just shifted like side to side. So the <laughs> land moves, the tree moves, the field moves. Yeah, it's like they just took the picture and like shook it in front of the camera mm. to kind of show that the tractor was. I thought it was actually very smart because you mm. you get the gist <laughs> of it from that happening, but you could tell that that was maybe like a budget cut scene. Mm. It says here that there are one thousand seventy eight backgrounds in the movie. Wow! Wow! Uh, yeah, they were um, just shot in continu in continuity so that the entire movie track could be viewed with just the backgrounds, um, enabled the impact of the color scheme to be evaluated and some backgrounds were repainted. Uh, I'm very curious, like, you know, it's just fascinating because this movie is all done in, through analog. Um, this was in the time before they brought in all the artwork into computers and assembled them that way. Um, so, it's like <laughs> they uh how do they do all the crazy like shadows and shading like i was trying to really understand like how they added that layer of shading over the backgrounds when they they're having to do a, a drop shadow on a character 
And I just, I'm not really sure how they do that. Do they just cut out like a transparent sheet to darken the background um, and then layer that with the, you know, the painted cell that, that contains the animated elements? Um, I'm not totally sure. I honestly have no idea. Those are some really good questions. I, it's all kind of a mystery to me how this animation works, mm-hmm. but they clearly were creative, not just the way that it was animated, but some of the things that they put into the animation, like that the mice use for their like little contraptions, their little submarine elevator that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, they, this was a creative team that was working together to make this movie happen, not just with the animation, but with, like I said, the, the things the animated characters use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they were all somewhat disenchanted with the way corporate animation had been done um, at this time and were just really hungry for something new. And I think that really came came through with the success of the level of creativity that you see on display here. I always think it's fun when they get to work in a small world, you know, where like a thimble can become a swimming pool or something like that. I think it's Mm -hmm. really cool to see the way that they, you see this in Thumbelina a lot, Mm -hmm. Um, but in this movie too, they were able to take, you know, beads and things like that and kind of create this home. Do you know what I'm talking about? They're able to Mm -hmm. take these like human elements and bring them into the animal world as if they're furniture. I I love that kind of thing. Yeah. The, miniature world just kind of made of ordinary objects it's fun to see like the dew beads are just extra large because you know water at that scale behaves differently than it does for a human scale yeah i think another thing and hannah and i were talking about this uh that's fun for the viewer is it seems like they do add sparkle like wherever they have the chance they add a little bit of sparkle like if the water's flowing it's not only flowing it's like sparkling as they're like walking through these, the stony area, the stones are sort of sparkling. They're kind of just putting these little white dots that appear and disappear, but it sort of makes it look like it's sparkling. Mm-hmm. And we thought that was really cute because it just added another layer of magic to it. Right, Hannah? Yeah, I think it like picked it up a bit because I think it does have like a, a, like a spooky texture and then it made it more fun. Like yeah, it made it I more kid like whimsical. Yeah, I think um, effects like that sometimes have to be accomplished by just removing layers of, um, you know, the animation sheets so that like the light can really shine through. Um, There are a few special techniques that animation studios had to employ in order to get certain light to really stand out um, if they wanted there to be these kind of sparkles or, or bloom lighting effects. Uh, just really some direct lighting. They really think of everything with these and like the backgrounds too, like are painted in such a way so that they can perform these complex camera movements where, you know, they're panning or tracking across these, um, these large painted backgrounds. And so like, if you were to zoom out, you know, this, this painting of a tree would look like it's sort of a, like a, a, what do they call that? a panoramic shot, you know, where um, it just looks like it kind of bends around the plane, Mm -hmm. but it has to look like that in order to make the, you know, the animation convincing that like, um, as the camera moves across it, 
you know, it's, it, it does feel like you're actually um, moving through the space in, in a three-dimensional space, essentially. Right, definitely. Even though all of these elements are composed in two dimensions, because um, this was the era before 3D technology was computer this movie stables. made before Anastasia and Bartok? Did this movie get released before then? Yeah, this was 1982. Okay. Uh, Anastasia's 1997. Uh, this was Don Bluth's first film. Um, wow. Yeah. This was his first film. I think he really knocked it out of the park. Well, yeah, it's, uh, it doesn't look dated, really. I mean, it's, you can tell it's got um, some different kind of technology put into the creation, really, of it. Because you can still see, like, some of the film grain. Mm -hmm. um, the restoration isn't perfect. It's, you know, it's still kind of got that old film stock effect to it, even watching it like on Amazon Prime, like I did. It is actually available to Prime members right now, which is kind of nice. Um, I think that works in favor of the movie almost. Like, I think that that eerie, uh, mm -hmm. like you said, kind of grainy feeling kind of mm -hmm. gives the movie even more dimension because it, it is sort of a slower paced quest that they're going on. And I thought mm -hmm. it, I thought it worked well for it. Like, I wouldn't want the remastered version. Like, I liked the old kind mm. of grainy version. Yeah. The designs, I think, really hold up. Like, it doesn't look more primitive in its, you know, essentially, like, the design uh, quality of, of the characters and the backgrounds. Those are all very competent and seem like um, they're actually... Uh, kind of a strong improvement on many ways, in many ways upon uh, some you know, Disney films of that era, like The Rescuers, for example. Yeah, I really love the, um, like the quest, how they're able to help, or not able, but willing to help her because of like her husband's, like how they had a relationship with him. I think that's really cute. Yeah, and okay, maybe this was me zoning out of the animated movie, but like, whenever she would mention she was Jonathan's wife, you know, she was treated with more respect, essentially, and kind of given a little more grace. Did I just, is it at the end that they say, like, he worked with us, or did he sacrificed himself? Well, he was, um, he was like eaten by the dragon. And so like when they, Oh, the, the dragon cat. I love that guy. I don't love that Ooh. guy, but he has a missing pupil too. Yeah. The cat's <laughs> seen better days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's why they like, I think have to like do that part. Like. First. Yeah, that's, that's kind of, uh, <sighs> like, sorry. No, the, the fact that this cat is uh, ominous presence throughout the film, but then you find out that that was the fate of Jonathan Brisby. He, he got eaten by this demonic looking cat dragon. Um, I guess an appropriate end, you know, to a heroic adventure. <laughs> like, I mean, not appropriate, but I, I guess if there was one uh, villain capable of vanquishing uh, Mr. Brisby, it would have to be this cat. Uh, you know, who he, he was assigned to um, to drug in order for the rats to pull off some of their um, hijinks. Yeah, their schemes. 
but they've been doing it for quite some time like they had that whole thing down which is why I found it shocking that like Miss Brisby like they all knew what the plan needed to be but like Miss Brisby out of all the characters was the one they selected to do it Mm -hmm. and of course she ends up getting caught but you know what I thought was really cute I don't know I feel like if I was a child like my dad would have been like oh like we have to kill that mouse but they're like oh like just put it back outside and he's like no I want to keep it so they like (laughs) I mean I'm not saying I'm just saying like the humans that you're seen in the uh, that you're shown throughout the movie um they do seem like relatively like caring like non-threatening aside from the tractor portion uh, do you know yeah. what i mean like yeah. like the family isn't out there trying to kill the rats of course they don't care if they're exterminated but they didn't want to kill miss brisby yeah yeah speaking of the tractor i thought that that was one element yeah you mentioned how some of that seemed like a little bit of a, a cheat with the animation and and it did um, you know, in order to create the the large mechanical object moving through the frame, you know, nowadays they would use CGI even in a 2D film. Um, but back then, I think what they did essentially was just um, r- rotoscope uh, an actual schematic of a tractor. Uh, so they just kind of copy pasted um, an actual tractor to the, the frames of animation um, using tracing essentially um so so that you know gives off more of a like a realistic effect um you know like like this is something this it looks more um like a photographed element than something that was you know drawn or painted interesting how they accomplish some of those kinds of effects uh back in this era of animation but yeah, the, the human characters are, are not portrayed as um, threatening, like you say. It's, uh, it's kind of an interesting. I, this movie does have a villain, a fairly obvious villain. It doesn't like attempt to solely be a situational kind of plot of the uh, rats kind of just having to uh, fight against their own circumstances. Um, but, but for the most part, that's kind of what it is. They're just trying to build a better world for themselves in this place where they find themselves at the Fitzgibbons farm is purely temporary. Yeah. Jenner's pretty evil. He's a power hungry little rat. Jenner, the rat. Yeah. They kind of form their own little, I mean, it almost seems like a feudal society, because uh, they look like they're dressed in like medieval uh, English garb or something, you know, when they're in their court, they're holding That's, court. <laughs> yeah, it kind of made me think like Knights of the Round Table, like everybody's screaming their opinion and like trying to, you know, sway the other ones to their side. Are the rats supposed to be considered smarter than the rest of the animals? Because like all the animals can talk. Is it just mm-hmm. the electricity that really sets them apart? I don't really know like what the main thing is that they bring to the table. Why do they live in the rose bush and all the other animals live in the field? Do you feel like that gets established somewhere and I just kind of missed it? Um, yeah, the, the rats are enhanced by the scientists of NIM, uh, which allows them to escape. Um, it's, you know, you have the phenomenon of, Nicodemus suddenly able to read uh, words, you know, human language uh, suddenly just becomes 
um, legible to him. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's almost as if these creatures possess, you know, like a supernatural kind of intelligence where it's just, everything's just so immediate to them. Um, but um, yeah, the, the regular animals, I suppose just, you know, they, they don't form these advanced civilizations like the rats do. Um, the rats, I thought it had yeah. something to do with that. The rats are like experimented on and like the science like is making them smarter. Yeah, I, I guess it was, um, you know, the experiments to test certain treatments, maybe for Alzheimer's or something like that. Different, um, you know, cycle or uh, mental health issues you're trying to develop pharmaceuticals yeah the rats and then just the two mice that survived that ended up and then mr ages the other mouse that survived he does his own experiments in that uh thresher machine yeah Um, yeah and he's he proves helpful um we have multiple instances of medicinal uh paraphernalia contained in um envelopes <laughs> i guess that's their transportation um that really stressed <laughs> me out those little yeah. envelopes the starting scene yeah. you know where she is i don't know she's so nervous to go and get the medicine for little timmy her child who's dying of pneumonia yeah. or at least sick with pneumonia mm-hmm. and then she goes through this whole back and forth with the jeremy the the, the bird and I honestly got really frustrated when I thought that she lost the medicine already throughout the movie. But, you know, of course, uh, the bird brings it back, so it was no big deal. But I was yeah. like, why are they putting these things in envelopes? And why can't they just, like, tuck them into the pockets on their jacket or something? Like, they're they're scurrying around with these things that got blown away in the wind. Yeah, envelopes aren't the most secure containers for drugs, unless it's anthrax, which is designed to be transmitted <laughs> through. <laughs> I don't think that's what she was bringing to little Timmy. <laughs> um, maybe to the cat yeah <laughs> yeah maybe to the cat i'm not really totally sure what they put in there um yeah but she wasn't quite fast enough anyway that was a satisfying moment though when it, you you really do feel for her when you do believe that she lost the medicine for timmy and she went to all that was, work sorry i keep interrupting no that's no 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 no, no no that's what I was trying to say. I feel like Mrs. Bribsey is really like a character that pulls you into her story. I mean like like I said when we went into it and you you really are rooting for her and I don't know if it's her big long eyelashes that they put on this character or her voice that kind of is gentle like Hannah said but the whole time I really was rooting for her and they do have a little like love moment maybe not a love moment a little a sweet moment between her and the Justin mouse mm. and and you just want her to like find someone and be happy and like have all her kids be okay although I don't understand why they had to move this whole house to save Timmy <laughs> like I feel like there would have been other options but yes you are rooting for her along the way and I found myself kind of catching my breath every time things took a wrong turn <laughs> yeah I, yeah she's kind of a nurturing role towards Jeremy I'm just wanting to like coach him in his own kind of difficulties in life. He's kind of an awkward uh, crow struggling to find his own mate. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Love nest for two. 
Um, Dom sure. DeLuise, yeah. yeah. Well, he tends to portray sort of neurotic characters like that. You know, he's a comedic actor. Tends to just kind of have a strong internal monologue. Um, and you said, I think uh, he plays Fagin in um, Oliver and Company. Yes, like I said, as soon as he started talking, it sounded familiar to me. So tonight I sort of pulled up other projects that he's been on. And I mean, he was in All Dogs Go to Heaven and a few other Bluth movies. But I think what stood out for me was he did play Fagin in Oliver and Company, who's the character who sort of, again, it's it's similar neurotic style, like, but he's yeah. taking in all these dogs and stray animals and trying to help the animals in that movie. Yeah. I, I feel like there's a lot of subtext in this film. Um, it's just kind of, there's some trippy visuals. You know, it's about, you know, it does have sci-fi elements involving experimentation and, and chemicals, you know, substances that enhance the mind. Um, I don't know, it, it, it kind of just adds a layer of mystique and mystery when it comes to essentially uh, consciousness and perception, which is kind of fun. Um, it's not too, doesn't lay it on too thick with that whole uh, subplot. Um, it's mostly just about this mouse who's trying to save her family. Uh, Mrs. Brisby, her children are Teresa, Martin, Timothy, and Cynthia. Um, I mean, it's pretty ambitious that they gave her four kids and <laughs> went through the, the effort of designing because, you know, it's just not it's not cheap to design these characters and animate them. And they were also adorable in their own way. I loved the little kids. They have the older sister who, who's kind of prim and proper, has her big bow. The middle brother, who's just a sassafras kind of. <laughs> stumble bumpkins like doesn't want to do what he's told and then you have like the little baby girl mouse who i don't know she's just trying to peek into everything and be part of everything so i thought they put a lot of personality into these children mice like yeah. you said they did put a lot of thought into it timmy you don't really get to know because he's just laying in a bed sick listening to a lullaby the lullaby does not stop playing throughout this whole movie were you guys oh, yeah. kind of humming it afterwards i feel like they played the same song in the background quite a bit yeah, I think the score um, was, like, not, Repetitive. like, acting, but it was, like, very present. Um, and there was, like, a few, like, little ditty moments that I was just like, what is going on? Yeah, Jerry, um, Jerry Goldsmith did the score for this. He did Mulan as well. Um, and he, you know, looked back fondly on the score. Um, this is his first animated film. Uh, so he, he, he uh, according to some of the stuff I'm reading here, he really made sure the the score was polished, and it does kind of provide a, an epic feel to the film. Uh, he does some great classical work. Yeah, I think um, the best part about music is like no matter how chaotic, if you play the theme throughout, it kind of bands everything together. And I think it really puts um, puts this movie in its niche of like creepy charming where you're not really sure, but it's like quaint and cutesy and a little weird at the same time. Yeah, I think it's kind of like a loving undertone. But if you say niche again, I'm literally going to kill you because I think it's niche. 
<laughs> Either way, actually. <laughs> but I know what you were saying, so that's what matters more. Okay, tell us in the comments of this podcast which way it is, because I don't Itch know. like an itch or a niche like a niche. <laughs> okay. I think it, I, it's, it's just one of those words, uh, like homage, homage. I don't, it kind of depends on the situation, which you use. Yeah. Uh, which inflection? <laughs> yeah, the movie's just kind of very heartwarming, even though it has some creepy moments. Uh, so there's some like actual violence that um, Gary Goldman felt that this film might wind up with a PG rating from the MPAA, uh, and and was actually kind of surprised when they didn't give it kind of the more intense PG. Uh, and it it is a uh, a, a g-rated film i would have given it a pg i mean those baby rats were about to drown in the mud pit and <laughs> all of the other disasters that are going on and not to mention but there was a blood in this movie which you don't see a lot I of the times in kid movies and, like we were all pissed about it oops no the blood the blood because like i, I can't think of another g-rated disney well again this isn't disney but yeah. you don't see blood often in a g-rated movie yeah, they're more lenient towards animated films. Like, you can kind of get away with, you know, maybe the intensity of content of like a a PG thirteen rated film in a in a PG rated animated film. To you know, to varying degrees, um, you generally animation studios want to cater to kids and families, so they don't push the boundaries too much. Um, I mean, more recently, I guess we have movies like Incredibles 2 that I think had a fair amount of action and kind of adult themes in it. Uh, and that was PG. But it, it'll be, uh, it'll maybe be a while before like a major animated studio releases a PG-13 animated film. Um, it might happen at some point. I mean, point. unless we want to talk about Sausage Party. <laughs> There's that. Whoa. Yeah. I don't know if you guys ever... Okay, whatever. <laughs> Off topic. But it, it was a PG-13 animated movie. Uh, I, I kind of like Sausage Party because it has some interesting ideas when it comes to, like, anthropomorphizing um, these inanimate objects you know, like, like food, sausages, things like that. And but there's the, too many moments that just, yeah. like, don't make sense. So, like, they're eating. Yeah. At, no, that's a whole different conversation. But, yeah, it's like the, the characters in Sausage Party, the human characters, they can, like, see the food items come to life if they take bath salts. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I don't. I wonder if there's something similar in Secret of Nim where – uh, human characters could potentially interact with the uh, the rodents, or, or especially the intelligent rodents, like the the rats of Nim, um, under certain circumstances. Uh, I I don't know the the nat the rats if they tried to speak English to the humans, it would probably just come out as squeaking nonsense. <laughs> but it's cool that they can understand everything that the humans say. They can well, and even right? Bris even Mrs. Brisby can understand what the humans are saying, and she wasn't experimented on, which is and that's curious. what I was that's what I was saying. Like, what is the main difference between the rats that live in the rose bushes that have the experiments versus the animals out in the field? Because I I'm not seeing how it really 
I don't know, made them smarter. I, Maybe I they're th- just not yeah. simpletons anymore. I don't know. I think the rats and and mice that came from Nim are capable of sort of imparting some of their intelligence to the their surroundings to like the the other animals that they come into contact with like the shrew for example like she's intelligent she wears clothes but she <laughs> the she didn't shrew come is wild yeah we <laughs> should actually talk about the shrew a little bit so she's basically the town busybody and she's kind of she is dramatic, like a little prima donna, like flipping her scarf all around. She doesn't have time for nonsense, but you know that she has nothing else going on but besides like knocking on the neighbor's door. And I think this goes back to the personality that they pour into almost all of these characters that they really could have just made her like a town crier and not made her have so many like personal mm. qualities, but they, they did make her memorable. Yeah. And same with the bird. I, I, I thought some of the little one-liners that they gave the bird um, just us. He's town gossip. But, like, why do they all have J names? I keep wanting to say Justin's Jeremy, <laughs> Jeremy's Jenner, Jeremy's Justin. But um, the bird has a lot of little one-liners, too, that I thought that were they were funny. With the, his little string bit, it could have easily gotten old pretty fast, but they kept it funny. They kept it cute. Yeah, I don't know if the cat can talk, for example, but... Of course, evil animals often can't can't talk. There's that guard character. That was one of the creepier moments in the film when Brisby's approaching yeah. the lair of the rats, and there's that one shadowy rat that is. <laughs> I mean, it, it doesn't look like he's trying too hard to kill her, but he's at least being very aggressive. <laughs> I I think think he's trying to kill her. I mean, he's stabbing at her with this shiny edged dart type sword. I think he's more trying to scare her off, but yeah, it's it's very intimidating. And that character's name is Brutus, I believe, but he doesn't speak. Anything, yeah. Um, I think he speaks in the book. I actually had the book read to me by my older sister, Whitney. Uh, my, My brother and I, when we were younger, uh, had the privilege of being read to by our older sister. That's actually really cute. I remember having the book as well, but I all I remember is the cover. So was this a chapter book or a like children's book? Um, it was a novel. I I, uh, I think it was designed kind of with kids in mind because it's not a, it wasn't super long. It's kind of like a standard paperback size. I don't know, like what you would see from like, like a Nancy Drew novel. Yeah, oh, boxcar okay. children. Yeah, exactly. Um, as long, provided that wasn't like an abridged version. I don't think it was. Uh, it did have artwork from the film on the cover of the novel uh, that my sister read. But yeah, I remember that. That was, uh, I mean, it was so fascinating. And it was, it instilled kind of a love of literature and us early on and, like my parents would read to us kids and then my sister, you know, she, she did the same. And, and then after she read the book, we watched the film. Um, and I mean, I was fairly young at the time. I was maybe under 10 or so. Um, but I, I don't remember the movie being like too scary, really. I just remember it being interesting, you know. 
Yeah, I feel like I blocked out the scary parts. It's hard to remember what you considered scary and not scary once you get older. Because now as an older person, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is way too scary for little kids. <laughs> but then when you're an actual kid, maybe you kind of sort through it. I think different things affect different kids. Uh, I had a couple triggers when I was younger. Like, I don't know, um, hypnosis scenes were, were freaky to me. Like in in jungle book you know with the i think oh, there's something about sick. that loss of control sensation yeah um ka like hypnotizing mowgli things like that um i don't know hannah hannah did oh i was just gonna say <laughs> hannah did you have anything like that like mine is sinking sand what was your like childhood fear mm. i think i was scared of butterflies for like a while there but that was really it. I'm not really scared of anything. No, in movies, like as a kid, was there ever like scenes that sort of like made you pause and make you feel a little uncomfortable? No. Oh. Hmm. What? Nothing. You're so weird. <laughs> okay. Right. Like I, do, I don't know. I would probably would like start a protest about a movie if I was a kid and didn't like it. Honestly, the rats would have tipped me off. This this movie sent me for a whirlwind. Hmm. Yeah. Um, kind of fun that we do get some like realistic action and violence. So like it, it does appeal to adults more so than other films of this vein. Uh, you, you do have that sequel spinoff that came out in 1999, I believe. Don Bluth wasn't involved at all, but uh, the uh, distributor... MGM went ahead with the sequel. Uh, a couple of the voices returned. The uh, Dom DeLuise as Jeremy, and then Arthur Mallet as D Mr. Ages. Um, but other than that, it's centered around Timothy, uh, who I guess good, nice that he got his due <laughs> as a character. <laughs> he doesn't do much in this one, um, but has his own adventure in in the sequel. But yeah, I don't know. I listened to one of those songs uh, from the sequel and it was kind of cringy. So I don't know if it's worth checking out. I, I did watch it when I was younger and I remember that it had music and that's about it. Cool. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. Um, I think briefly mentioned the, the actress who played uh, Mrs. Oh, Brisby. Yeah. We talked about tragic. it before we started filming, but yeah, or she's recording. very interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah sad elizabeth hartman um mrs brisby's first name is never revealed i don't think in the book or the film uh so sometimes fans just refer to her as <laughs> elizabeth brisby because of the actress oh, cute. this was her final role she died at 43 so yeah. sad honestly really tragic i feel like I mean, Hannah and I actually talked about this a little while ago, but people in the film industry, it just seems strange from the outside looking in. You see someone so beautiful, has like what you would call a glamorous type job. I mean, she's in movies and she's doing voiceovers. And to know that she was in and out of institutions, I mean, essentially her whole life, it sounded mm -hmm. like. Um, it's really sad to think about because it's like if somebody who has everything kills themselves, like <laughs> what's going on for the rest of us? Hmm. Well, I think that there's such like a stigma of like actors to look a certain way and be a certain way and put on such a front. You never actually mm -hmm. know like 
like not that other people with different professions can't be like this, but I think they're better at hiding it. Um, and I also think it's interesting that this movie had a little bit of merit, well, a little bit, it really went into mental health in like a different way um, as far as to be, um, you know, even associated with the mental health organizations and then for her to have such a tragic um, end, it's almost as if this was kind of like an ode to her in a way, the more you think about it. I don't know. Or maybe yeah. it was just, I don't know how she, it'd be interesting, obviously we won't ever know, but her perspective on did she pick this project because it spoke to her in that way? I don't know, but I do definitely feel like you can hear her fragileness and her like fragile strength in her voice. Like I feel like you can hear a little bit of brokenness and a little bit of grief like in her voice acting almost like because I mean Miss Brisby like she's going through a lot like she's yeah. trying to raise these four kids she she lost her husband she's just trying to like get medicine to her kids hashtag healthcare for all um and <laughs> sorry and, and I just feel like you can kind of hear that in in the character's voice and and through the actress's voice so I I don't know I don't know how to answer your question yeah. Hannah but I could definitely hear it she doesn't come across as helpless, but yeah, it's certainly tender. No, she she has tena is the word tenacity. Yeah, she, she's 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 persevering and she's pushing through, but like she mm -hmm. also, you can tell, has gone through like the hard times. And maybe her voice is another reason that you connect so well with her as a little mouse character. You know, I was thinking it was the eyelashes, but it could be the voice. <laughs> and oh, I think yeah. um, there's a realness to her heart and the thing about voice acting is like you don't have your facial expressions sure she can rely on the animators and that's why I think a lot of the time animation will stem from the actor's perspective and what they bring to the role and like even you know how Disney I'm sure this was like maybe a bit different but I had to at least know where they'd like study the actor and then put that into the animation I think with voice acting, it's a different perspective. We had like a light masterclass on this in college. It wasn't even like a real masterclass, but we really walked into voice acting. Um, and it's almost like that's all you have to give. So you have to dig deeper. And if she was so closely intertwined with like the topic or the feelings, and here's the thing, mental health is so widespread. You'll never know her perspective yeah. completely but I feel like maybe that was a pull for her to do the role or maybe honestly even like a trigger post role mm -hmm. it's it's hard to know well she was nominated for best actress in a leading role for a patch of blue in 1965 it's a movie that showcases an interracial couple so she uh, plays alongside Sydney Poitier uh, in this film to to portray lovers uh so yeah definitely a innovative film uh portraying an interracial couple in 1966 or 60 65 <laughs> 1966 oscars he gads can you imagine such a thing an interracial <laughs> couple how dare they yeah. this is me being sarcastic but <laughs> no interesting 
Honestly, yeah. 1985, like an interracial couple in a major motion picture being nominated for an award in the same movie is like pretty wild. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, I mean, even as recently as like the 90s, it was rare you'd see like an interracial kissing scene or. Well, I mean, it's still like rare. <laughs> wild as well, so it's like nobody knows. Um, but it's it's cool that they took that step in 1985, and I hope that uh, that part of history can repeat itself. Yeah, or uh, 65 was the, um, uh, the a patch of blue. Oh, uh, oh, and then, oh my yeah. gosh, that's even better. That's like yeah. right civil rights time. Yeah, that's awesome. 1965, uh, and then yeah, Secret Name came out 1982, and then. Elizabeth Hartman tragically passed away June 10th, 1987. Um, also in this film, uh, John Carradine plays the owl. He's an elderly actor at the time who um, was on, <laughs> he was on some like painkiller medicine <laughs> and he came in a little bit drunk to his recording session. <laughs> uh, so they had to kind of, you know, just get him in the groove um, and then once he recorded his lines, he insisted each time that that was his best take he could possibly give. And so <laughs> for each one of the great owl's lines, the actor recorded them only once. Hmm. Um, and uh, thankfully, yeah, thankfully uh, he gave a good performance. Um, because, yeah, I guess he was he was just a little bit... Um, <laughs> I don't know. I guess difficult to work with, but also just he—he's a—he was a seasoned actor who kind of knew his stuff. So, what it didn't prove to be a problem ultimately. Um, but yeah, I guess act, people of a certain age would know who John Carradine is. Um, I can't say I know of him from any other works. Um, the the voice of Nicodemus. Uh, he's in some things. Um, uh, Derek Derek Jacoby, he's first build. <laughs> um, he's in some things. He he was the you guys maybe know of um, the character of the king from the live action Disney Cinderella. That's <gasps> Derek Jacoby. Oh, just kidding. I thought you meant the Brandy Cinderella. I can't remember no. the king from the actual like 2014 version. The Lily James Cinderella. It's that. That's the one you're talking about, right? Yeah. Like, seen that one super Brandy good is the only live action cinderella that i care about but i mean you can watch yeah. it like i'll watch it eventually i'm sure i don't really watch movies honestly like i love the like we can tell <laughs> <laughs> just kidding what the heck <laughs> yeah um yeah so not a ton of like super recognizable people from our perspective in this uh, film, Hermione Bradley plays Ani Shrew. Shannon Doherty played Teresa. Yes, uh, actually, was... I don't love Shannon Doherty, but I do love Charmed. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, Hermione Bradley played um, Ellen, the maid in Mary Poppins. Cute. Uh, so she's the shrew. And then Will Wheaton. Uh, played Martin, um, and he's an actor who would go on to 
do a bunch of stuff in the late eighties and nineties. Um, he, he played, um, Crusher, uh, <laughs> what's his name? Um, uh, shut up, shut up, shut up, Wesley, Wesley Crusher. <laughs> what are you <laughs> in, talking about? Star Trek, the next generation. One of the biggest shows of the late eighties, uh, Will Wheaton played the the one kind of recurring youth character on that show. This is when we need Dawson when it comes to anything Star Trek, Star Wars. <laughs> like we need Dawson back in business. I think I've seen more of that show than Dawson has. I'm almost to season six. Oh, I haven't seen the whole thing yet. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I was just kind of blanking on his character's name. Uh, it's uh, yeah, it's been a, a long show. Um, we'll wrap up here um but yeah it's been fun just chatting about some secret of nim this movie was i think highly innovative because it it did have uh a group of people working on it who were very passionate uh, even though they didn't have the same kind of resources as you know some of the uh the contemporary animation studios from the era um yeah very uh, exciting beginning to yeah. Don Bluth's career and that of his studio. Um, he would follow this up with An American Tale, a film produced by Steven Spielberg. Uh, Secret Nim released 1982 against uh, other major films that summer, like E.T., the extraterrestrial. Uh, so part of its box office woes could perhaps be attributed to um, competition from films like E.T. Uh, but Don Booth was ultimately able to court Steven Spielberg into producing future films. So that was a major win on his part. Yeah, I think, oh, just my wrap up thoughts is I just want to kind of echo yours because even though this isn't maybe one of everyone's like childhood favorite movies that they remember I will say it's definitely worth the watch because of the passion that they put into it and like we said throughout this one the little personality bits and the artistic touches they put in on it I would definitely really recommend this one especially if you have Amazon Prime you should check it out because if you like animation at all or have any interest in these types of movies it's definitely worth the watch and if you love animals like you might want to write a blog about it fascinating film if you love animals uh, you even learn a little bit about some of the gruesome treatment undergone by some of these animals at the hands of uh, human experimentation, unfortunately. But uh, hey, uh, it worked out okay for some of these rats who went on to live uh, happily ever after, so to speak. Um, yeah, it's kind of funny. You see these rats using these complex uh, rope and pulley systems in order to move that cinder block uh, with the kids inside of it, breaking, you know, at least uh, several dozen OSHA regulations in the process. Uh, but yeah, like you later see Bartok using similar pulley systems in uh, Bartok <laughs> the Magnificent. It's an interesting uh, juxtaposition there. Um, yeah, pretty, pretty kind of those rests to just go ahead and construct this complex machinery at the behest of uh, Mrs. Brisby. But I have to imagine they kind of viewed that whole endeavor as sort of a test run 
for their future projects and, and plans, you know, having to move their whole civilization from the farm. Um, we didn't even comment on like the, I guess the theme of these rats having like conflicts over stealing power from the farm. Like there's kind of a moral dilemma that they're yeah. facing. There. It's kind of interesting. It's like oh, I thought that was a, Yeah, I thought that was actually really cute because usually in animal movies, if they're thrifting away from the humans, they don't seem to have a conscience about it. <laughs> so when they're commenting like, yes, we have power, but it's not our power. We're they're not like the borrowers from the movie, the borrowers, like yeah. they actually want to be self-sustaining. Um, and I thought that was, it was just another little touch that they put into this movie that they really didn't have to, that made it more uh, complex and, and interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. This is probably my favorite Don Bluth film. Um, it's a great, a thriller uh, features a song at the end credits by Paul Williams, who wrote uh, rainbow connection from the Muppet movie. Yeah. I remember that song from Piano Lessons. Yeah, I was just about to say we sang that when we were kids. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, some some interesting and, and yeah, the the Muppet films have some insightful themes as well. Rainbow Connection. It's it's kind of like uh eye-opening when you think about it like just um, kind of like the force, you know, everything is interconnected and everything has like moral consequence. Um, and these are sorts of themes that, you know, not, that people don't always think about. Um, it's, it's probably good to have them in films like this. Um, fun little genre bender dealing with family, uh, DNA and, you know, science. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's definitely worth checking out and, and yeah, lots of f fun action moments as well. And not only that, but I mean, the child has an upper respiratory system that they call pneumonia, but it very well could have been COVID-19. <laughs> so it's very actually a timely piece. It is yeah. very much so. All right. Does anyone care to uh, share any of their uh, social media info to the audience? Jody? Well, guys, I don't feel like I gave you my best, best, best tonight. So, like, I really want you to follow me to keep up with me on Instagram. It's Jody Pulaski, J-O-D-I-P-O-L-A-S-K-Y, because usually I'm a lot livelier, but COVID's really getting to me. But I love this movie. I hope you guys check it out. Um, and like I said, it's free on Amazon Prime right now. It's fine. It's just a laid back fireside chat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Hannah? Um, so you can find me on Instagram, Hannah Lee Ever After. Lee is L-E-I-G-H and then Ever After like fairy tales. Or on Twitter where you can hear all of my big opinions. Um, I'm <laughs> sure I'll share a few PETA articles after this one. Um, at Hannah Smart. And that is where everyone unfollows me. So I'll need extra help there. <laughs> all right. Well, you can find Thoughtcast on our website. Uh, I, I just called it Thoughtcast. Sometimes I call it the Thoughtcast. Sometimes I call it the Thoughtcast. Conversation about Thoughtcast the podcast. <laughs> Thoughtcast the podcast. It is at Thoughtcast.com, at Thoughtcast on Twitter and Instagram. You can hear our show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, 
and um, you can find me Philip Elke on Twitter and Instagram as well. Uh, thank you so much for listening. This has been episode 56 of the podcast on the secret of Nim from 1982 directed by Don Bluth and uh, you all out there have a magical day, a wonderful week and warm hugs. Thank you.